to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host, Rick Lee, and as usual, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Charles Peterson and Dr. Lee Johnson. This week, we're talking about immortality. Yes? No? Maybe? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about you, but I want to live forever. But before we get into the topic, as usual, we're going to start with getting some drinks and ranting or raving. Let me start with you, Charles. What are you drinking and what are you either ranting or raving about this week? I'm just going to go with my default drink, which is a Tito's and soda. Call us Tito's. (laughs) That's right. Big vodka. Waiting to hear from you. My rave this week is sports histories. I'm in the process of reading Jeff Perlman's book, Showtime, The History of the Rise of the 1980s Laker Dynasty. It's a fantastic book. It's got that great breezy style that really good sports writers have. And I'm having a great time reading about a team that I never liked but could always respect. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Lee, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I am going to, as usual, stick with my as usual drink. I'm going to have a Fireball and Diet Coke. I'm also raving this week. This week, I'm raving about Alexa. Now, that probably doesn't surprise you, but I'm especially raving about how much more personality Alexa has grown in the last year or two. She's more than just a home assistant now. She actually tells jokes. She's much more responsive. And I don't know if this happened to anybody out there in the podcast listening world, but earlier this month, I got April Fooled by Alexa. And it was, <laughs> it was a hilarious experience. What about you, Rick? <laughs> Noel, I'll have a Reisdorf Kolsch. It's starting to be summertime, and I need a smooth drink and beer. This week, I am ranting about the stupid way the founding generation of the United States has decided we will pick Supreme Court justices. I think it's dumb. I think we're the laughing stock of the world. And I don't want Senator John Kennedy to have any more opportunities to speak out loud. <laughs> he just he just rolled a lot up into that ball of rant. I'll say that. I'll say that, Judge. The whole process is just so stupid. Anyhow, so Charles, I know we're talking about immortality. What exactly are we going to talk about and how did we get here? I need to get a grasp, I need to get a handle on why it seems that Americans, in an unspoken way, are obsessed with living forever. I lived in Los Angeles and I lived in Miami, and the complete and total devotion to youth culture, to staying young, to being 80 but looking 20 in terms of exercise and all these various ways of doing that, really made me wonder, is this healthy? Is it healthy that people want to maintain this particular visage ad infinitum? 
And I want us to talk about the idea of immortality in that context. I want to think about it as a problem for a society. I want to think about what does it indicate in terms of individuals who have this quest. And I also want to talk about the ways in which maybe other cultures around the world deal with these questions of immortality and, of course, the flip side, mortality. Charles, in that brief introduction, it seemed like you raised a number of aspects of immortality. And if I could, I'd like to start with one of them, namely the physical, medical, aesthetic side of this. You talked about looking like you're 20, even though you're 80 and so on. I'm wondering... How is it the case that things like plastic surgery and we could add a whole cosmetic industry and so on, how is this related to immortality in your mind? For me, the linkage is the quest for youth and sustaining the qualities and the capacities of youth as, if not a perfect example of immortality, an extension of the desire to live forever or exist at a certain level forever. I'm interpreting these various procedures and mechanisms, people's quest to stay young. And we can certainly talk about healthy is the equivalent of that, right? Can people be comfortable being aged and healthy? But the idea of health being explicitly connected to youth and youthful maintenance as an aspect of the desire for immortality. So I might want to poke at that a little bit, but before I do, let me ask, I mean, I suppose I can see that no one would want immortality if it meant an infinite decline forever and ever. <laughs> you're, next day, you're always worse. It's like the opposite of Zeno's paradox. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so I guess then I do see that immortality has to be linked to a certain notion of, if not health, then at least well-being. So if one wants to be immortal... I would like to be immortal only if I have a condition of well-being. But I'm not so sure that is the same as striving for youth and when I'm 60 looking like I'm 20. Because, right, no one wants to say I want to be immortal if that means that I continue to project the signs of aging. This goes back to my time spent living in L.A. and my time spent in Miami and thinking about the obsession with a particular parents, with a particular culture of a parents. You know, people are living in the sunshine. People are coming out here. They're engaging in these various activities. We're talking plastic surgery, liposuction, tummy tucks and all this stuff. And this is how you freeze frame one's appearance at a certain moment in life. And you want that to maintain and forever to be the picture of you. And I'm reading that as a quest for immortality that's connected to this larger fantastical idea of living forever. To me, that's a reflection of wanting to be immortal, that you preserve yourself unchanging over the course of time. That's interesting because I do think that part of our fear of death, if we do fear death, is about the final years leading up to it. And I think that most people would have a different attitude towards death if our lifespan was also a health span. If I could live to be 100 years old healthily, then I would probably want to do that. Currently, I do not want to do that because I know what those last few years are probably going to be like. So I can see Charles's point how that fear of those final declining years may manifest as a desire to capture and hold on to youth. 
But I do think that there's a difference between wanting to be immortal and also believing that one can be immortal and wanting to capture and hold on to youth. So one aspect of this physical notion of immortality is this, as Charles put it, a certain appearance of youth is crucial to this sense of immortality. But the other physical aspect, which I think is probably related, maybe unrelated, is the medical interest in preventing death as much as possible, to the point where now there are whole aspects of medicine and biology that are trying to, as it were, overcome death. And the flip side of both of these, and the questions are different, both in the aesthetic side and now in this biomedical side, I think we're not looking at the ethics of this as well. If we all live forever, where are we going to put all these people? Right. Right. What are resources going to look like? I also wonder, thinking about mortality and thinking about death as a disease, as something sort of unnatural, something that should not happen, something that should be delayed, something that should be forestalled or even eliminated. I walk a lot in the park near my house with my mom. And there are a species of duck, I think they're called wood ducks, and those fuckers have like 16 chicks at once. (laughs) And one day we're walking and there's a mama duck and she's swimming with 16 chicks. Then the next day we come back and the, the same mama duck, she's swimming now with 11 chicks. And, you know, over the course of weeks, she's down to five. And I turned to my mom and I said, do you think that in the age in which it was more common around the world that people would lose their children, that we had a different idea about death and mortality. And without missing a beat, she said, of course we did. Of course. Like her mother was from Ireland. There were 11 children that made it to adulthood, but there were like three or four that didn't. And my mom is convinced that the family was just like, oh, well, that's that's too bad. And life goes on. And so I think I tell this story to go back to your point, Charles, namely that maybe the issue here is not so much immortality, but let's look at how we've changed in our relationship with death as a society, as a culture, why death seems so uncomfortable and so out of the realm of our everyday experience in ways that I think it did not used to be. It didn't used to be a disease. It used to be the fitting and natural part of life. From my perspective, you know, we can't speak about immortality without thinking about or talking about mortality and what may be the motivation for people to want to live forever. And I agree for a host of reasons, right, whether it be improved medical science or improved nutrition or the stabilization of infrastructure or just being able to get access to clean water, human beings now experience fairly commonly much more extended lifespans. And also, we've normalized this idea of having really expanded lifespans and death not being as regular or common a part of our lives. I agree with you. I grew up with a very large extended family. My father had three siblings who died before I was even born, one from crib death, one at 13 because of a heart condition, and another fell into an unfortunate accident. 
So those generations were like, yeah, of course you have 12 children. If nine make it to adulthood, that's a huge success. So I think yeah. that is something that we have to grapple with, what mortality meant to those generations. But I think also, what does immortality mean for those generations as well by having nine children, by having 14 or 15 or 30 grandchildren, right? Can we talk about the ways in which immortality lives within the context of that generation and that social understanding? You're going back to a point Lee made maybe two seasons ago that you have children and I have books because we're looking for immortality. <laughs> and that began the equation of children and books. Right, right. <laughs> Listeners, we're virtually toasting you here at the hotel bar. But since we can't put our next drink on your tab, we figure the least you can do is follow this podcast on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off air thoughts. Charles is at CF Peterson, that's at C underscore F Peterson, and Peterson is spelled with an O. Rick is at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor is abbreviated DR and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now on the off chance that you weren't just furiously scribbling notes while I said that, you can visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know about how to follow and listen to us there. Now, back to our conversation. I think we're on to something here in terms of expanding the idea of immortality away from just a question of a perpetual physical existence. So we're thinking about the ways in which our identities in a certain way continue to exist, our ability to maintain or be maintained in the world speaks to immortality. How does one's place in the world sort of be stamped in perpetuity? How can one always be remembered, acknowledged, or recognized as still existing in a certain way? And is that just through biological reproduction, or can we begin to think about other endeavors in human life where people try to stamp themselves upon the world immutably? In saying that, Charles, you help me now see a connection between this striving for immortality in the form of children or books, or in the intro, I quoted the song Fame, I Want to Live Forever, and so fame is a kind of immortality. I see now the connection between this and what we were talking about before, and also now I see better the question of aging, namely that aging is a sign that I'm about to not exist, or my non-existence is coming closer and closer and closer. Exit one mile. <laughs> I'll have non-being, please. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that one. And so as these signs accrue that my non-existence is coming closer and closer to me, then I'm wondering, are all these other forms of thinking about my offspring as a kind of my living on in their DNA, in their memory, and so on, or my projects in the world, things that I have completed, things that I have accomplished, living on beyond me, these are ways to sort of project my existence into the future 
so as to prevent an absolute non-existence. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that is the notion of immortality that I find really interesting. I mean, I can say with zero reservations that I have no interest whatsoever in physically living forever, even if I could be healthy for that forever. (laughs) But I am really interested in fabricating things, making things, writing things, influencing other people, etc., such that, just to be quite frank about it, my existence makes a mark on the world, that it mm. it's memorable in some way. As you probably can guess, what's really interesting to me is that we have more and more avenues available to us to persist in non-physical ways beyond our physical deaths. So we can do that, obviously, in books. We can do that in works of art, in buildings. We can do that through many forms of data. But we can also do that in our podcasts, right? In our social media presences and our tweets. And there is something about digital life that is immortal. And that's something that I find really interesting. But yeah, as far as physical immortality, just going back to the question that Rick asked at the top of the episode, immortality, yes or no, definitely a no for physical immortality. But I would say I'm interested in the non-physical immortality. As I learned years ago, if I'm correct about this, radio waves travel off into space. And theoretically, you may have an alien culture that has that level of technology that may be able to pick up Jack Benny shows from like 1947. That's an interesting technological preservation of that expression. Does digital information travel in the same way? Will it leave planet unless we take it off planet? Well, I don't know about leaving the planet or possible alien cultures, but I do think that, you know, we've had ways of recording ourselves, recording our thoughts, recording our histories, etc., in books, in films, on records. And the thing about all of those things, right, is that those are physical archives and that they also deteriorate and they also can die. The interesting thing about digital information is that Obviously, it can die, but it's a lot harder to kill it. It is harder to kill digital media for sure, but I'm wondering if that's because on the one hand that it is not physical in the same way, or is it because it is spreadable and so its corporeal location is multiplied and so you could kill its body in one place, but it still lives on in another body? And I think it's more that than the fact that electrons, you know, bits are inherently physically stronger and and so on. Right. But that leads me to another interesting question is that this drive toward immortality, the one that comes after we say physical, no, but I would like my existence to be noted. I would like to have made a mark somewhere that this really does rely on a community of people gathered around technologies and so on to preserve my memory. And I'm not sure that's any different from oral history sitting around the fire and talking about, you know, my Aunt Lee, she used to say 100%. And (laughs) I'm not sure that our podcast that we're recording right now being stored in many computers around the globe is really culturally and existentially much different from that. For me, it's interesting to think about the rise of technology, not just as these pragmatic endeavors for human societies, but it is this existential desire to preserve, to maintain, 
And not just for the individual, like I'm just not drawing on the caves in now southern Spain for my own benefit, but I'm doing it in order to remember others, right? So Ulak died because he got too close to the lion. But if I can draw this picture of the event. Fucking Ulak. <laughs> How many times have we told Ulak? Typical, typical Ulak. <laughs> Anybody who knows Ulak knows that Ulak's going to Ulak. That's some Ulak <laughs> shit. Right. But I can draw this picture representing the moment that Ulak sort of met their maker so that I can remember Ulak as well. So. Immortality is just not for my own individual benefit, but I want those that I know to be immortal so that I can remember them and others can remember them. We can have that memory and we can have that moment of existence and connection and maintain that with Ulak through this expression, through this artwork, through this song, through these stories, through these narratives, so forth and so on. But then there seems like there are two sides to this. I heard Lee earlier pointing out and I don't want to single Lee out because I agree with her in this, that I would like to have made a mark. I would like my existence to have a more lasting, I can't say forever, who can say forever, but a more lasting impact than it seems like my 60 or 70 Let's face it, I don't think I'll have more years than that. But <laughs> We're going to pull you across the line, Rick. <laughs> but that I have a, a greater impact than those short years would seem to indicate. So that's from my perspective. And I'm not sure from that perspective, that indicates a concern for existence. That seems to be a concern for meaning that I want my existence to have been meaningful. Because otherwise, it seems like everything I've done was a waste of time. Mm -hmm. totally then the agree. other side that you're bringing up, Charles, is that we then memorialize ancestors, friends, artists, and so on. We memorialize them in order to keep their existence in front of us. And that's a different kind of concern, it seems to me. And that our first concern about our having an impact relies on that second group having their own concerns. And as I'm learning as someone who has no children, I better be awfully nice to my nieces and nephews because at some point my life or my memory is going to be in their hands. You could take my strategy, which is ask Patreon subscribers to uh, <laughs> donate $5 a month, and then you'll just give them the rights to your end-of-life issues. Or you could just take an interest in the neighborhood children. <laughs> uh, let's not do that. <laughs> we'll be like, you know that guy across the street, Rick Lee? He takes an interest in the neighborhood children. <laughs> oh, you mean, oh, you mean the bachelor professor? That seems totally legit. <laughs> we, we almost had the first real spit take ever on the podcast. <laughs> I think you're on to something. Started off talking about immortality as an individual endeavor, this quest for uh, a sense of one's own meaning and importance. How do you not talk about immortality as a communal or collective phenomenon? There has to be someone around to note that you were there, that you had meaning. People that you had meaning for have to be there and have to be there to tell that story of the meaning you gave to them. I don't know if I told this story on the podcast before, but... Several years ago, my mother's husband had to come into Chicago because his aunt passed away, and he was the executor and had to deal with the arrangements and so on. And then not long after that, his mom passed away. And so we had a couple of nights sitting around the kitchen table with a glass of wine talking about 
our plans. And my mom was insistent. She said, you know what? I don't want to create a fuss. I just, you know, I want to be cremated. You know, maybe a few of you could get together, but but I just don't want to fuss. And as those words came out of her mouth, I thought, you know what I want? I want to fucking fuss. <laughs> Big, Big fuss. fuss. <laughs> and you know what makes a fuss in contemporary U.S. society? Money. And so I want this funeral to cost big coin. The reason is this marking thing. It suddenly occurred to me that at the very end, to just sort of slip out in your hoodie and sweats, like we treat the rest of our lives, is just not a way to mark this person had an impact on our lives. And so I've spent the rest of the time trying to convince her Okay, she doesn't have to have the same $30,000 casket that I'm going to have, but to at least have something more than just slipping out, to go away unnoticed, to at the end of life have a punctuation that will say, this person matters. Or you could go full Jeremy Bentham and just have an auto icon (laughs) preserved in a box. (laughs) Right? With your cane and your hat looking like you're thinking about something philosophical. That reminds me of a great line from Death of a Salesman, where Willie Loman's wife is confronting the sons as they're trying to discard him as they know he's dying. And she says, attention must be paid Mm, to this man and his life and what he's done. And I think that's a really brilliant way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we've been kind of beating around the bush and we haven't just talked about the desire for immortality in the way that I think is probably most common, which is the religious sense of immortality. So people who believe that there is an afterlife, maybe even another world, a heaven or a hell, and that that life has at least some kind of resemblance to my life so that I can think about my own life as living on past its death. This is not a belief that I have. It is a belief that probably most people that are close to me do have, but I just don't really understand. What do you think drives people towards these kinds of belief systems? At the core level of that, I think there is an incredible distrust of the natural processes of the world and the improvability of human society. So it seems to me that when you have invested in this idea of a utopian afterlife, then in a sense you've given up on the possibility of making and creating a better world or understanding oneself as being part of a larger natural cycle to where certain types of limits, setbacks, certain types of dangers are just built into the existence. And that's normal, and it's not some problematic occurrence. So when you can't accept bad things happen, or when you are like, well, people aren't going to get any better, we're not going to make better societies, we're not going to create better forms of government. Once I've said that, they're like, well, but I want something good. I want to be in a space where I don't have to have these concerns and fears anymore, so let's construct this idea of when I die and escape the imperfect world, then I will go to a place that is my ideal. Now, that varies, of course, because, you know, the Elysian fields are very different from Valhalla. But, you know, the creation of an ideal world is clearly the reflection of the willingness to believe that this world cannot be better or will not be better. And I just gave you a little bit of a Feuerbach. There we go. 
Who knew that was going to happen? <laughs> I mean, I don't know that that's entirely descriptive of, and I'm just going to pick an example that is most familiar to me of, for example, Protestant Christian belief in spiritual immortality. I mean, I think that in many ways, a lot of that afterlife is tied up with, among other things, a judgment day, a kind of final reckoning. And so the belief in it is not a discarding of this world. It's not a escape from the ethical importance to have some good impact in this world. In fact, it depends in many ways, like what that afterlife is going to look like on what you do in this world. But I wonder if what Charles was doing was more of a genealogy And Lee, you're showing the ways in which once I have this projected world, then it can be deployed for the control of what people do in this world. In other words, if after you die, life will go on and it could either be a reward or a punishment, then I can control your behavior here to say you ought not do that, otherwise you're going to go to hell or you ought to do this because then you'll go to heaven. I could see that both of you in a certain way are right. I think Charles is pointing out that in a way, if I were to make a world in which I would live and thrive and be at home, this would not be it. That this world is dangerous, it confronts me all the time with travails, and then I'm going to go through all of this, and in the end I'm going to die. I wouldn't have made this world. And so to project then a kind of ideal world beyond this one helps me confront that problem that here I am in a world that I understand and I also understand is not really a comfy, cozy home for me. Then the projection of that ideal world can be manipulated in order to then reflect back on the world in which we live as I said, in the form of control of one's behavior. In other words, I could put it this way. Charles was perhaps pointing out the existential origin of something like an afterlife. And then, Lee, you were pointing out the ways in which religion has co-opted that existential origin for its own purposes. But isn't it weird to believe that people can live on after their deaths? I mean, I find this always fascinating. I mean, no one has ever experienced someone coming back from the dead. And I'm going to, before anybody says anything, I'm going to, you know, put in brackets these medical miracles and et cetera, or someone being resuscitated or whatever. But certainly no one has experienced anyone who is immortal. And certainly no one has experienced immortality themselves. But all of these stories are dependent on presenting death as if it's an illusion, as if it's something over which we can have a kind of victory. And that is such a bizarre belief to me. I mean, there are lots of ways in which the world that I'm living in is unsatisfactory to me. And it's unsatisfactory because of the actual physical limits of my body. But I don't just ascribe to a belief system that's like, I can fly (laughs) or I can, you know, I can violate the basic laws of physics, you know, but, you know, millions and millions of people the world over ascribe to a belief system that says I will not die. That's weird. But I also wonder if part of that is people's need to find some level of empowerment, no matter how ridiculous it may seem. But the desire to feel like I have some control, I'm not completely relegated to a vulnerable posture 
within its existence. But there's still some final card. There's an ace in the hole that I can pull. At the end of this phase of existence, I can say, mm, I'm not the loser. And I have overcome this. Right? You have not beat me, nature. You have not beat me, injustice. You have not beat me, cruelty. I'm better than this. I can move on. So it speaks to a desperation on a certain level. So I see your Feuerbach, and I'll raise you a Marx. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to go hang out with (laughs) Ugo. Because Marx would point out that even if you're right, Charles, that this is a move toward empowerment, it actually backfires and has the effect of being disempowering in the sense that, as you put it, if the afterlife is my ace in the hole— Having that ace in the hole means I don't play the hand I've actually been dealt. And so I'm not Mm -hmm. acting in this life in order to make my life and the lives of others better because, well, in the end, I'm going to live forever. Anyhow, I'm going to go into the afterlife. And so it robs any power I might have of affecting my current circumstances and places all of that into the hands of the afterlife. No, I agree. I completely agree. And to me, that's the desperation. Could you say more about what you mean there by desperation? That your position is such where you are subject to that type of manipulation, that embracing that suggests that you think you're empowered, but you're really not. And embracing this really is is disempowering. But I do want to emphasize Lee's amazement at holding this belief, because when you state it as clearly as she did— I'm sorry. It's just whack. It, it's just it's just crazy talk. And yet it goes on. Well, I will say this. And, you know, me, I always like to think about this in very specific historical and cultural ideas. And I agree. It's like on the surface, from what we would consider an objective analysis, this is just bizarre. But then I like to think, what are the circumstances that drive people to believe this? What are their actual material conditions? What's the organization of the society? What's their place in that society? What's their position and status within their worlds that drive you to believe that? So here's an example, and I have, may have mentioned this on the pod in a previous episode. I talked to my students about the Nation of Islam under Elijah Muhammad. And some of their ideology was this idea that white people were the actual incarnate physical being the devil, Satan. And my students are like, well, that's, you know, I say, yeah, it sounds crazy. But then I ask you the question, what is it about Elijah Poole's life in Georgia in the 1920s? What has he seen? What has he experienced that drives him to believe that with his whole heart? So that absurd, whack, what we would see as deeply irrational embrace of this idea is in response to what we would see as equally irrational, insane, dangerous circumstances. So their rationality is in response to this other sort of irrationality that's taking place, i.e. the violence of white supremacy in the rural South in the 1920s, in the case of Elijah Muhammad. I get that explanation, but I don't think that it makes it any less, as Rick says, whack. (laughs) Because I think that if you find yourself in conditions of injustice, poverty, I mean, even sometimes just despair, confusion, whatever, in your life, I don't see how it makes more sense to be driven to this belief system, this story about immortality and an afterlife and a heaven or hell. I don't know why the drive to adopt that is more widely heeded than the drive to, for example, take over the means of production and make, you know, actual changes in the world. 
I mean, it does just seem really bizarre to me that this is such a widespread belief that we could be immortal. But now I'm starting to think that based on what Charles said before and what Lee just said now, I'm starting to wonder, could it not be the case that this desire to have my existence have a mark or have made a mark, to the desire to have my existence matter in a situation in which I am oppressed, I am impoverished, I am experiencing injustice, that I can't see a possibility of getting out of this, that the only way for me to make a mark is to live forever, to live in an afterlife in which I will carry on because the possibility of my making a mark here is being foreclosed by my circumstances. I mean, I think motivationally that makes sense as an explanation. I think for me, and I'm just repeating myself, the belief that a human being can be immortal, can not die, or can live on after their death is as weird as me looking around the world and saying, this world doesn't suit me, I can fly. <laughs> right. No, I, I get it. The motivation does not make the content more rational. I mean, let me just say this. Here's one thing that is a form of a belief in an immortality that I think in a way kind of does make more sense to me, which is a belief in reincarnation, for example. So that's a way of talking about how I do actually experience a death that is a real death, but that maybe I come back as another person. Maybe I come back as an animal or a plant or whatever, you know, and of course, maybe we could say, look, nobody's ever had an experience of that either. It's an unfounded belief. But I'm not sure that we don't really have that experience where we see things die and we see them feed new lives, you know. And so in some ways, reincarnation seems less whack to me than the kind of immortality that we were talking about earlier. The interesting thing about reincarnation is one, it's entirely material all the way through, right? So I, I don't right. have to worry about what kind of a life is this afterlife right. if I'm not embodied. So reincarnation solves the material problem, I think, really well. I think the other interesting thing about reincarnation is that is it really that hard to move from the fact that I may have been a cow b before this life to the fact that after this life I will live as books? I don't think there's that much of a stretch there. No, I don't think there is either. I think one other thing that we haven't mentioned about reincarnation is that often embedded in these belief systems is something that is, I think, just existentially true in a human experience, which is that whatever we're able to do in one life is going to feel incomplete. Oh. There are going to be things that we learn, and maybe there's more things to learn. Maybe there's more things to do, different things to do. You know, if you think about some spiritual systems, reincarnation maintains its sentience, and you have the spirit of granddad or grandma now is returned in the form of like the first child born after the passing of that elder. And one can recognize whether it be through spiritual or f even physical features. They're like, oh, well, that's granddad. Come back. Certainly, we would probably call that just genetics nowadays. But the idea that this is the return of this spirit. Now, I think about the selection of the Dalai Lama, perfect example mm -hmm. of this. And they're looking for certain qualities which identify 
this newly recognized Dalai Lama having carried over or holding on to characteristics from the previous Dalai Lama. Yeah, or the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm serious, it's, it's right? The, uh, well, the, the difference yeah. is that, that the Catholic Church doesn't think that this pope is the reincarnation of the previous pope. Right. No, but each pope is the Holy See, right? right? Each pope is St. Peter. Yes. Really. That point that you were making, Charles, reminds me, my mother gave me an old family photo album. And I mean, it's so old. It's one of those, you might imagine it. It's like red velvet with inlaid oh. ivory roses and and it's falling apart. Like as you, you have to be very careful when you open it because it's falling apart. It smells like hard candy. <laughs> it, yeah, it smells like, well, in my grandma's case, it smells like hard candy and black Russians. Um, <laughs> but I'm going through it with my mom and asking, you know, okay, who's this? And one of my aunts had written the names of all the relatives that she could remember, which was very nice. All of a sudden, we turn the page, and I am not kidding. I am looking at a picture of my brother. Mm -hmm. It is exactly my brother. If I showed it to one of my siblings without saying anything, they would be like, when did Brian go to one of those photo booths where you dress in old-time <laughs> yeah, clothing? Old and, and there is a weird sense of immortality in that, that I guess that was my great-grandfather that I was looking at. And now I'm looking at my brother, and in looking at my brother, I now see my great-grandfather, who, by the way, I never met. Yeah, I mean, I have a hard time signing on to the part of reincarnation that supposes that identity is preserved across several lives. And a lot of that just has to do with the fact that I have a hard time believing in a soul. But absolutely is not difficult for me to think about one life dying and giving birth to another life from the material of that first lifestyle. Yeah, and following from that, I also don't subscribe to any notion of reincarnation that also has a kind of judgment involved in it, so that depending on what you've done in this life, you might come back as a donkey or as a bee or whatever. I don't like, I, I, I don't like judgy reincarnation. <laughs> well, if nothing else, <laughs> reincarnation really deals with and handles effectively the question of resource distribution. Rick's earlier term about immortality being a problem for like, how are you going to support all these people if no one's going to die? Well, if you get reincarnation, mm. it's actually maybe a sustainable way of immortality or a sustainable form of immortality. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Hey, 
What I always find interesting, if we think about immortality, are the ways in which it is identified or represented in, in pop culture, whether it be television shows or whether it be novels or whether it be movies. And my perception is, or based on what I've seen, popular culture isn't really a big fan of immortality because I can't really think of representations of immortality that are positive or fun or seem to derive any great meaning or benefit. I always think about the portrait of Dorian Gray. And you've got this young, vibrant, well-spoken gentleman of the age. But certainly the physical decay, all the things he's doing to his body and the way it's projected upon this portrait in his attic is an example of the type of corruption and the malevolence that accrues over time. And I'm like, there's something that's being said of the danger of not having a limit on one's existence. What's interesting about that danger is I just happened to have recently heard a podcast that was about, well, it ended up being generally about vampires. And what was interesting was they were going back to the Victorian era and even slightly earlier and talking about the way in which vampires, who are also immortal, were a way for dispossessed people in societies to talk about the aristocracy or the bourgeoisie so that they're the ones who are vampires. That's why Dracula is Count Dracula, because the <laughs> aristocracy are vampires and they're sucking our blood. Gary Oldham's Dracula from the Coppola representation popped into my mind with the big hair, the bonnet, and the booth. Mm. But, I mean, there's another portrayal that if this history is right, that the vampire emerged as a way to say, look, these people are sucking our blood, and that's not a very positive portrayal of immortality. But on the other hand, sticking with the vampires, in the last few years, at least in the U.S., like the sexy vampire is all over the place. And like some of those vampires <laughs> are really, really hot. <laughs> if I could just pick up on this, because I think there's another film, it's a relatively recent film that stars Memphis's own, Justin Timberlake, that's called In Time. I don't know if either of you no. have seen this film, but it picks up on a similar theme about immortality being a privilege of the wealthy. So in this film, In Time, everyone has like a digital clock built into your arm. And when you're born, you live until age 25, and then that clock starts to tick down. And when you're out of time, you're literally out of life. You just drop dead. And so when people go to work, they don't get paid in money. They get paid in time. And, you know, when they buy their coffee, they are using minutes of their life to buy things. And so how this works out is that the very wealthy, right, people who have a lot of time end up being effectively immortal. They just sort of stay physically at this appearance of 25 years old for their entire life while the rest of us, I'm assuming that I would fall in the lower class in this world, are working every day literally just to stay alive, just to keep time on our clocks, life in our bodies. I think that this idea of immortality being something that is available to the privileged, to the wealthy, etc., is still very much present in our lives now. And Lee, I wonder, given your interests, how you would extend that then into forms of immortality like, for example, I just saw that either Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, I, I can't tell them apart, they seem the same to me, um, <laughs> have said that we're on the brink of being able to upload our consciousness to robots. 
okay, mm-hmm. who's the we there? We are on the brink yeah. of being able to yeah. do that. Right. And I'm wondering, will that again be, I'm not wondering. Assert, asserting. I am pretty convinced <laughs> and worried that it will be the wealthy who will do this. And I wonder if we're now, after the age in which ordinary everyday lives could be documented and recorded on Facebook, on Twitter, and so on, that we're now on the age of slipping out of that so that only the wealthy are going to have their consciousness uploaded. Only the wealthy will live forever. Yeah, I mean, first of all, that was Elon Musk who said that, and I completely agree with everything that you just said. I don't think that that's any different than what we see in people's access to biomedical technologies Mm. as well, right? All of the advances that are being made in anti-aging technologies, in end-of-life technologies, et cetera, are extremely expensive and are available only to the very wealthy. And we can track that back down to very simple things. Just, you know, having health insurance is expensive. You know, being able to have access to preventative care is very expensive. So, yeah, I think that that's absolutely true, that not only longevity of life is a privilege of the wealthy, but it might be the case that living forever will just be a privilege. So you're saying that Obamacare will not cover your visits to the Sinclair lab? I wanted to, and I think that's a great point, Rick, but I also wanted to revisit this idea of the parasiticism of the wealthy or the desire to live forever. Think about the movie Get Out as a perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, these white people are able to sort of upload their consciousness into the bodies of black people and enact this weird Aristotelian sort of master-slave dynamic in terms of white being purely rational, purely mental, and the black body being purely physical, right? And that's another way in which privilege shows itself as wanting to live off of the downcast, the marginalized, the oppressed ad infinitum. Mm-hmm. But Charles, what about the depiction of immortality in this movie that you talked about in a previous episode, the one with Sean Connery and... Oh, um, Highlander. So Charles, then what about the depiction of immortality in a movie like Highlander? Because they're immortal, right? Yes. Very Darwinian. So, So their immortality has this class or this race of super warriors battling across time, each one knocking the other off until the final warrior attains some sort of divine like supreme power that makes him the most unique godlike being on the planet. But that picture of immortality looks really great from the perspective of that last one standing. Oh, sure. It looks really sucky from the point of view of the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, right. Here's some ancient Egyptian whose head's been cut off in an alley in the Bowery in the late 1980s. No, it's not so much fun. But unfortunately, it is this heroic and this very epic depiction of what is a very brutal struggle for oligarchical supremacy, I think is a one way to read it if we're following uh, the path that you laid out with the analysis of Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, two things really quick. One, I think it's interesting to think about the way that films immortalize people in the same way that books Mm. and children Mm. and other artworks and fabrications do. But the second thing I wanted to say is that, you know, a lot of times in films, immortality is represented as the ghosts of the dead coming back to visit us. I'm thinking of like quite literally in the movie Ghost, right? right? You have, you know, Patrick Swayze come back and what do they do? They're the pottery. Yeah, making a pot pot or something. Yeah, Yeah, making a pot with Demi Moore. But it's interesting that 
because it's film, because it's a visual art, the dead have to be represented in some way, in this case, as a ghost. But really, it's about memory, right? It's about how we keep people alive. We keep the dead alive in the memories of the living. And the living are always trying to, as Rick said, make a stamp on the world so that the next generation's living keep them alive in their memories. That is a notion of immortality that I have no problem with. Me too. It doesn't involve me saying things like, I can fly. <laughs> what, what, no hocus pocus immortality for you, Lee? None? <laughs> None of that hocus pocus immortality. <laughs> So Noelle has asked for last call, and while she's pouring our last drinks, Charles, any final thoughts about immortality? Remember, these will last forever. I want to thank both of you for your patience with me as we talk about this. For me, what I gain from our conversation is that what's central determining or gaining or understanding the sense of meaning that people have with their lives, we have to confront this question of the barriers or the limits on that life whether it be aesthetic or whether it be actually physical or whether it be social, no meaning without a boundary. Fundamentally, that's what makes immortality such a problematic concept, that no meaning gets gained. There's no boundary by which to define oneself. There's no reflection in the mirror because there's no mirror there if one is constantly moving forward. So I think it's really important to consider that and certainly important to consider the various ways in which elements within our culture want to not have those boundaries and want to exist in an open-ended way without any questioning or self-reflection. So if one of you will call a cab while we're waiting for it, I just wanted to remind everyone that we have a Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. And we're not asking to get rich off of this podcast. We're not asking to get immortality money. We're just asking <laughs> to help defray the costs that we actually incur. Really, anything you could give us would help a lot. So please go to patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. We really appreciate it. Is the cab here? Yeah, I called a cab. I'm going to let you guys take the cab. I'm going to see if I can fly home. <laughs> I'm just going to sit at the bar until it all crumbles around me. And in 2,000 years, I'll still be here. <laughs>